So Daniel chapter 1, in the Church Bible, it's page 616. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasure in the house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among them were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the God took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the end of the chapter. Thank you very much indeed. Um, yesterday afternoon I went to 
visit uh, Bishop Joe Bell, um, who has been moved into high care in the Silver Mine facility. Um, for the benefit of your, your new students at George Whitfield College, if you go into reception, on the right-hand side you'll see a plaque on the wall which shows that Bishop Joe Bell opened the college back in 1989 and he was presiding bishop of Reach SA for a number of years. Anyway, unfortunately the cancer has got him and uh, he was very frail, very thin. Um, he could hardly speak. I'm not actually sure that he really knew we were there. So it won't be long now and I just thought as he's been such a good friend to us as a church that I would just pray for him before we begin. So won't you bow with me? Gracious Father, your holy word tells us that our times are in your hands. So please hear our prayers for Bishop Joe as he nears the end of his earthly life. Comfort him with your gracious promises of the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And now, as we come to your precious and life-giving word, I pray that you would give clarity to speaker and to hearer alike. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this doesn't happen very often, but I think someone's walked off with my sermon. Otherwise, I'll get to Ian. He can come up and explain Daniel chapter 1. Ah, lovely, yes. Thank you so much. I'm losing my marbles. Thank you very much indeed, Ricky. Good. Well, let's have Daniel chapter 1 open in front of us. And the title of the sermon today is A Different Loyalty. Last week it was A Different Perspective, and today it's A Different Loyalty. Now, in um, several weeks' time, there's going to be uh, elections in Zimbabwe. And um, we have friends there, and our friends are bracing themselves because they know, don't they, that elections in Africa often bring danger and hardship. So, uh, in a, a previous election campaign, just a few years ago, now uh, this is how one particular pastor serving in Zimbabwe described his experience. Quote, In the past months we've seen what can only be described as diabolical cleverness and demonic wickedness. Long delays in announcements frustrating the work of the Electoral Commission and then the violence. Slowly and steadily, well planned and orchestrated, the violence has grown. There's one sentence, indeed one word, on the manifesto of this election campaign. It is fear. And then the pastor said this, Please pray that we will understand God's larger purpose and be willing to endure with an eye on that. End quote. Well, that prayer, I think, perfectly expresses what every Christian needs in the face of trying and difficult circumstances. 
And by the grace of God, you and I might never experience the difficulties that the people in Zimbabwe have had to put up with for decades now. And obviously we do hope and pray that things will be different this time. But the Bible is very clear, isn't it, that we Christians are not wrapped in spiritual cotton wool. From time to time we are going to experience suffering. Jesus himself said, didn't he, in this world you will have trouble. But when the trouble comes, we need two things. Firstly, we need to know what God is doing. Is he still with us? Is he still in control? Can we actually trust him to keep his promises? And then secondly, we need wisdom to endure. We need to know how to respond to the trouble. Now, in answer to that first question, we saw last week that the book of Daniel gives us a very different perspective on life. So, as you and I try to make sense of the kind of anti-God culture in which we find ourselves, Daniel reminds us that in spite of appearances, God is very much in control, his plan is on track, and yes, we really can trust him to keep all his promises. And we're going to see that again and again and again in our series. But this morning, we're thinking about the second question. How are we to respond? When we find ourselves confronted by the demands of the anti-God culture in Cape Town, what are we to do? Well, there are three lessons to take away from the passage. Lessons which we can apply to our lives this week. And the first is this. Don't withdraw. Don't withdraw. Verses 3 to 7. If you ask someone who's read the book of Daniel before what they can remember about this chapter, they'll almost certainly talk about Daniel refusing to eat the food from the king's table. That's uh, obviously important. We'll come back to it in a moment. But before we do that, please remember that there were several things that Daniel and his friends said yes to. Notice first that Daniel and his friends said yes to a pagan education. Verse 4 says they were to be taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians. And there's no suggestion anywhere in the book that they put up a fuss about it. Now, friends, that's a surprise. Because throughout the Old Testament, the people of God are constantly being urged to devote their energies to studying the Word of God. They were to be immersed in full-time Christian education. In fact, their success and prosperity depended on it. And now they've been deported from the Promised Land, Uh, they find themselves in a pagan society, God's people are enrolled in a pagan curriculum. And apparently they participate without even batting an eyelid. They didn't skip the lectures, they didn't bunk the tutorials, and that's a surprise 
because we know from archaeology that whilst the curriculum did include some good things, things like economics and poetry and history, it also included magic and astrology and pagan myths and legends. Well, Daniel and his friends do protest about something else, but they don't protest about their pagan education. Of course, we need to be super careful before applying this to the way we educate our children today. But I think it's worth making just a couple of points. The first is that all true wisdom is God's wisdom. Uh, The teacher might not be a Christian. The school might not be a Christian school. But the infinitely wise God of the Bible can use anybody that he chooses to pass on knowledge about his world to our children because, of course, he made it and he made everyone in it. And secondly, the Bible's teaching is that it's actually the responsibility of parents to teach their children the word of God, not the local school. There were many things in the Babylonian curriculum that were spiritually unhelpful, to say the least. But the ability to distinguish between truth and error comes from learning to apply God's word to our lives. And learning how to do that should happen at home as part of what it means to be a Christian family. Because learning God's word is not a dry academic exercise like um, physics or chemistry, which we can quite happily subcontract to the teachers in the local school. No. The word of God is the word of life. It's living. It's active. And as Christian parents and grandparents, we are to think about it and talk about it with our children and our grandchildren in the daily routines of family life. And as our children learn how to live by that word, they also learn how to leave behind the stuff they pick up at school that's unhelpful and even downright false. Well, there's lots more we could say about that. Maybe you can pick it up in your discussions at home group during the week. But for now, for this morning, just notice that Daniel and his friends said yes to a pagan education. Then Daniel and his friends also said yes to a change of identity. Uh, Look at verse 6. We're told in verse 6 they were given new names. Now what's that all about? Well, their old Jewish names ended uh, with the suffix, well, one of two suffixes, either E-L-L or A-H-R, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. And L and R are shortened forms of the Hebrew name for God. And because in Hebrew culture a person's name described their nature, their old names identified them as belonging to the God of the Bible. But now they're given new names. And their new names 
identify them not with the God of Israel but with the gods of Babylon. It was a subtle but a very powerful part of Nebuchadnezzar's indoctrination program. And we're not told that Daniel and his friends put a fuss up about that either. And then thirdly, notice this, they said yes to a political career. Verse 5 tells us they were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. See, that's what this was all about. Uh, They were to give their lives to furthering the interests of a pagan nation. And it turned out they were pretty good at it. So later in the book, we find that Daniel becomes Prime Minister and his three friends all have extremely senior posts in government, cabinet ministers at the very least. And they don't utter so much as a word of complaint. Now, I don't know about you, but I think we look at that and we say to ourselves, well, this is all wrong. You know, Daniel, what on earth are you doing giving so much of your effort and energy to promoting the prosperity of Babylon. And I wonder, perhaps, if some of us haven't got the idea in our minds that the the godly Christian is the one who withdraws as much as possible from secular culture. And yet, only a few years later, the prophet Jeremiah wrote to the Jewish exiles in Babylon And his letter contains some fresh but very surprising instructions from God. I'd like to show you what they were. Keep a finger in Daniel and uh, turn left in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, so you turn left, you find yourself in Ezekiel. And after Ezekiel you find yourself in Lamentations. And before that you find yourself in Jeremiah. Let's have a look at Jeremiah 29 verse 4 and following. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, I've no doubt that when the Jewish exiles heard that letter being read out, they'd have been stunned. But friends, if we think it's strange, perhaps we need to be reminded not to try and create heaven here by withdrawing into an exclusive Christian ghetto. Because one of the things that we learn from Daniel is that God is glorified as his people use their gifts for the good of society as a whole. You know, as Christian teachers set an example of Christ-like behaviour to the students, 
uh, as Christian employees work with integrity and honesty and uh, as Christian politicians serve for the good of the people and not simply for their own advantage. See, God is glorified by all those things, not just because work is a gift from God, although it is, but also because God is concerned about everybody. He's concerned about your non-Christian neighbour, your non-Christian friend, and he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So don't withdraw, and yet Daniel won't allow us to stop there. There is a balance. Because the second thing that we learn from the passage is don't compromise. Don't compromise, verses 8 to 14. Now I think so far uh, these men must have seemed like a bit of a pushover to Ashpenaz. So we can imagine the scene, can't we, at morning coffee on the first day of term when the king said to Ashpenaz, how's it going with the new intake? And Ashpenaz would have replied, oh no problems there, Uh, they're saying yes to everything. Well, until we come to verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now I think we read that and uh, we say to ourselves, don't we, well, why the food? I mean, if it was okay to take the magic and astrology masterclass, and if it was okay to have a change of name that removed any reference to the God of Israel, and if it was okay to sign up for a political career in a pagan country, why make a big deal about the food? There have been over the years lots of different theories about it. Some people have said that Daniel didn't want to eat food that was unclean or forbidden under Old Testament food laws, Jewish food laws. But that can't be right because Daniel refused the wine and uh, the Old Testament food laws don't prohibit the drinking of wine. Other people say that, well, maybe it was because the food had been offered to a Babylonian idol. Well, that's possible, but then surely that would have applied to the vegetables as well. So that doesn't seem to work either. Now, I think a much more likely explanation is that in Daniel's day, to accept food from the king's table was to accept his authority over your life. And uh, we kind of have a a weaker form, a much weaker form of the same principle in the business world today. You can ask Michael about it afterwards. But you know, when a businessman goes out to lunch with another businessman who pays the bill and shortly afterwards rings up and asks for a favour, Well, it's extremely difficult, isn't it, to turn him down. That's why we have the saying, don't we? There's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, that's the principle here, I think, only far, far stronger. So by refusing the food and wine from the king's table, 
Daniel was making a statement that his loyalty to God came first. He would not compromise it. Now the question of where you and I might draw the line in a pagan culture is actually the subject of much debate among Christians today. Of course we're not talking about the areas where scripture is absolutely clear don't, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, honour your father and mother. We're not talking about those things. No, we're talking about the grey areas where scripture doesn't give us a clear direction. How are we to know when we've begun to compromise our loyalty to God? For example, let's think about work for a moment. Do we say as Christians, well look, it's perfectly okay to work from 8 till 5, but if you work from 8 until 5.30, well that's careerism, that's idolatry. It's not clear, is it? Scripture doesn't say. Or what about materialism? Do we say it's okay for you to drive a VW Golf or a Polo, but if you drive a Mercedes with leather seats and air conditioning, well that's materialism. And that's ungodly. Well, once again, the Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us where to draw that particular line. And I think the point is that ultimately, where you and I draw the line will be different for each one of us. Typically today, uh, I think we see Christians responding at either of two extremes. At one extreme... Uh, we find people who draw, draw far too many lines. Um, so uh, the result is, of course, that they're perpetually in conflict with the rest of the world and with many other Christians as well. That, of course, is Pharisaism and Jesus had no time for it. But at the other extreme, there are Christians who talk a great deal about drawing lines but all they ever do is talk about it. And if you watch carefully, they never actually do draw a line. But Daniel is a great example to us because he didn't go to either extreme. He's somewhere in the middle. He was willing to be involved in the pagan culture, but not uncritically. He knew when to draw a line. And one of the reasons that we can be sure that Daniel is an example we can trust is because of where this particular book is located in the Bible. You might think perhaps that uh, Daniel belongs to the collection of books in the Old Testament known as the Prophets. But it doesn't. The early church classified Daniel amongst what were known as the writings. And the writings were all about wisdom. So the book of Daniel is actually a wisdom book. It belongs in the same collection as Proverbs and Psalms and Job and so on. That means Daniel is the wise man who shows us that we must be ready to draw the line at the point where our own personal loyalty to God is likely to be compromised. And that will vary from person to person. Daniel could have drawn the line elsewhere, 
but presumably in his own conscience he felt the education programme, the name change and the career weren't an immediate threat to his relationship with God. But for Daniel to accept food from the king's table was to put a question mark against his loyalty to the Lord. And I think it is important for us to see how vital this is for our own Christian walk. Think of a climber. Ian's a climber. Think of a climber on Table Mountain and he's halfway up but suddenly he begins to slip. And below him there is an absolutely massive drop. If he falls, he's dead. It doesn't really matter where he puts the axe in. He's just got to put it in. And it's the same with us. As you and I navigate the steep slope of our anti-God culture, we need to recognise when our own loyalty to God is likely to be compromised. And in that moment, we must be ready to put the axe in because it's that decisive action that shows where my trust really lies and it keeps me from sliding over the edge. The reason, friends, this is so very important uh, is not just because it's a witness to other people around me. We hope it is. No, the main reason that it matters is because it strengthens me. It's a clear statement, isn't it, between me and God that ultimately my loyalty is to him and no one else. And it's using our judgment to draw a line in some of the grey areas that strengthens us when the really big spiritual attack comes along. And again, you might like to discuss what the grey areas might be for you this week in your home groups. So don't withdraw. Don't compromise. But Daniel teaches us a third lesson, which is don't be afraid. Verses 15 to 21. You see, I don't know about you, but um, while I understand that God expects his people to be involved in the culture, I have to admit that at times that idea troubles me. You know, what's going to happen when I dig my axe in to avoid compromising my loyalty to God? Will I lose friends? Will I be despised by members of my family? Maybe for you the issue is, will I lose my job? Daniel surely knew that refusing the king's hospitality was not a riskless strategy. In chapter 1, Daniel and his friends were only teenagers, probably about 14 years old. And Nebuchadnezzar was a violent man with a very short fuse. So I think it would have been unnatural if these young men weren't frightened when they took their stand. But as we saw last week, chapter 1 reminds us that God is always in control of his world. So, in verse 2, 
We saw that when Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, he didn't win the victory in his own strength. No, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And you find that same pattern repeated several times in the passage. Look at verse 9. When Daniel has refused food from the king's table, we're told God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. And then, after a few days on the vegetarian diet, we read in verse 15, at the end of ten days they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And uh, we just need to pause on that for a moment because there's a danger that we kind of slide over verse 15 and miss the point. You see, in our health-conscious age, we tend to look at that and say, well, of course. You know, they were on the fresh and healthy diet, weren't they? You know, vegetables and water. They were bound to look better. And, of course, as we say that, you know, what we're thinking of, we've got this mental picture, haven't we, of some beautifully prepared organic vegetables from Woolworths and an endless supply of bottled mineral water. But, of course... That simply isn't it to read our own situation back into the story. The truth is that without fertiliser and pesticides, the vegetables would have been half eaten by bugs, very unappetising, and the water was certainly polluted. So we've got to forget about walrus, and we've got to see that the healthy option actually for Daniel was the food and wine from the king's table. And it's only when you and I do that that we grasp the point of verse 15. That at the end of ten days they were healthier and better nourished than the other young men in spite of their diet. Not because of it. So have you got the picture? Daniel and his friends took a stand. They refused to compromise their allegiance to God And despite their inferior diet, God sustained them, he nourished them. Not only were they in great shape physically, but did you notice that they were also in great shape intellectually as well? Because, verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. So that when they came before the king for their final assessment at the end of three years, they didn't simply scrape a gentleman's pass, did they? No, we're told in verse 20 that when the king questioned them in every matter of wisdom and understanding, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. What's the point? Well, the point is not that putting God first is a sort of fast pass to a great body and a razor-sharp mind. Not that. No, to grasp the application for us, we need to remind ourselves what role Daniel and his friends are playing in God's plan for the human race. God has placed Daniel and his friends 
in a pagan culture as a witness. And a major part of their witness was making wise decisions, wise choices, and keeping their hearts pure. You might say, well, so what? Uh, Where was the advantage for them in that? Well, look at verse 21. Last verse in the passage. Verse 21 says that Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. He would have been 90. So Daniel not only outlived Nebuchadnezzar and all the pagan kings that followed, but he pressed on, living a godly life, until the Lord put a man on the throne who announced the end of the exile. You see, friends, verse 21 is there to tell you and me that if we are one of God's children, if we put our trust in his eternal king, our time in exile here is limited. He will bring us home. In the meantime, Daniel has set a great example for us to follow. And to show you what this looks like for New Testament Christians... Before I pray, won't you please turn to 1 Peter towards the end of the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2. Now what's happening in this letter is that the Apostle Peter is writing to Christian believers scattered throughout the Mediterranean world and they're surrounded by people who know absolutely nothing about the God of the Bible. Okay, so very very much like the situation in Daniel, isn't it? 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that at times our world is bewildering so much that perplexes us and confuses us. So Lord, thank you for reminding us that you are always in sovereign control of every detail of our lives and that because of Jesus our stay as aliens and strangers here is short. Please strengthen us as you strengthened your servant Daniel so that we might not withdraw from the culture, but rather seek to build bridges of friendship into it. And grant to us the wisdom to know when to draw lines so that our loyalty to you is never compromised. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.